Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Jeff and Andrew from Road to Infamy Games. Together, they design streamlined, easy-to-learn games centered around a unique game mechanism or component. The recent title, Canvas, funded on Kickstarter last year with over 16,000 backers. Jeff, Andrew, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? Good. Good. Thanks for Thanks having for us, having James. Us. <laughs> it's great. This game just gets me so excited and brings such joy just looking at it. Like it is a almost like a visual masterpiece, right? This is the kind of game that when you're at game night uh, out in public at a, either a local game shop or if you're doing a, a group with friends and people walk by the table and see this game, this is the, this is the stopper, right? This is the one where people stop and say, whoa, what, what are you guys playing? What, what was Thank the inspiration <laughs> behind this whole thing? Like you guys did some crazy, crazy numbers on this. Like this hit just for the listeners, 16,000 backers, as I said, $713,000 in Canadian dollars. It always sounds bigger than it's in Canadian dollars, but I mean, that's a huge, huge campaign and it's so unique. You know, this idea of these kind of cards coming together and so forth. So like, what was the inspiration behind that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, uh, Thank you for, for those very kind words. Definitely going to slap that on, you know, next version of the game, visual masterpiece. <laughs> Love that. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it, it stemmed from a conversation Andrew and I were, were having before Gen Con a couple of years ago. Um, and I was, I was really trying to make uh, an art themed game that, that used the transparent cards. We had played... Um, Mystic Veil uh, a while before that, which is which is a great game. Um, but like when playing it, I just really wished the whole time that when I put the cards together that it would like visually do something uh, additive and use make use of that transparent component. So we argued for a really long time about how <laughs> totally impossible it would be to achieve something like that. And then months and months later, changing the art style, like we finally landed on something. Um, our, our illustrator, Luan Huynh, did an incredible job like figuring out like the right type of, the right level of detail to use and stuff. So it still felt like painterly and stuff kind of blended together mm -hmm. like it was painted. So that was a huge obstacle, but it all like really stemmed from just trying to figure out how to cleverly make that uh that transparent component work yeah I, these cards i remember seeing even some of the like the game crafters of the world or makeplaincards.com where you can go and get your prototypes about a year ago started announcing hey now we've got you know transparent uh like acrylic cards right and i think that um you know good for you guys to look at that and say okay how can i take this new kind of invention or idea and turn it into something that, that that's creative um, so you guys are the co-owners of this company. How did, how did you guys meet? Like, is this is high school. I, I hear you guys this is how you first kind of connected. Yeah. Jeff and I met in basically yeah. homeroom of high school. Um, and from there we, uh, made a band together, uh, a ska band. Jeff played <laughs> the guitar and did vocals and I did drums. And then, um, yeah, our friendship just went on through college after college and we ended up being roommates in Chicago and um you know with that close proximity we just like always 
you know, talked about games and um, yeah. So it just kind of naturally developed from there. Now, were you guys creating games even when you're in, in, in college or high school, or is this something that kind of later on kind of started coming together? You want to take that, Jeff? Jeff may have frozen, so I'll let you answer that. Oh, one. okay, sure. So yeah, in um, in high school, we'd get together. Um, it was mostly Jeff would be making games. Um, he made uh, like we made a, a friends group only version of what you know was Cards Against Humanity. Yeah. You know, played apples to apples and saw how you could just put naughty words on cards and have fun. <laughs> and then um, and then later after college, we we really loved the the series hunger games, like the book series. Okay. And we got 24 friends to get online and play a, like a dungeons and dragons style version of that. Well, and cool. that was the first time that we really delved into like game making, game making, like, Oh, what do we want people to feel? What do they want to do? How do you, what would make you feel like a 10 year old kid, like fighting for survival and like, you know, um, what? so that we said, Oh, that's great. We can make that into a board game. And we tried and we couldn't do it, but we, we made a different game instead. We made our first uh, game, Road to Infamy. And then naturally the next step was like, we think this is really good. Like, I think other people enjoy playing it. And wouldn't it be so cool if we could get like a hundred people in the world playing our game. So it started out very modest and as like a, a part-time thing that we just did as a hobby. So, and then you guys decided to name your company after that first game. It was <laughs> Yes. <laughs> It, it which, was just which I, it was a cool no name one or should ever do <laughs> it's a fine <laughs> game um it's funny like after we came out with it i was watching reviewers like tom vassal will put it in every board game review where it's clearly a brand new company it's like oh look another company named themselves after the first game people need to stop doing that so if someone's <laughs> out there like aspiring publisher like name it just something fun and cool and don't you don't have to tie it to the first game you make you're going to make other games you're going to grow as a designer and make you know hopefully like even better and better games so just find find some name that you are happy to say a hundred times a day because <laughs> well, Road to me is a mouthful <laughs> it is that's a cool name though i mean you got to give it that at least it's a cool name so that's something that uh <laughs> and i mean with this kind of game after game you guys keep launching i mean that's that's your road to infamy right so it uh, kind of fits uh fits the, the image of your company so thank you that's very nice of you <laughs> i i do want to dive into some of those other games in that journey but before we do that let's talk about canvas because i know that again this is just visually an amazing game. can you describe to people how to play this game for people that are, that are watching i'm going to share my screen so they can kind of follow along on the kickstarter page um, but can you just kind of take us through the, the gist of how you play the game? Sure. Um, yeah, the, the, the overall concept here is you're trying to create paintings and you do that by picking up uh, these transparent cards that have partial illustrations on them. And as you layer them together in various combinations, uh, not only do you create a, a cool, unique illustration, but um, depending on the order you layer them in, they may reveal or obscure various icons. So it's very much a, a puzzle game as you're trying to um, get the right sequences of icons that match the, the scoring conditions. And then you'll score ribbons the, the more times you um, 
you hit each victory point condition. Um, so there's a little bit of a card drafting mechanism where you're paying the inspiration tokens um, to the center to, to take the card that you want. Um, and then it's very much a, a spatial reasoning puzzle game to, to try and uh, score as many points as possible. Yeah, and it's, uh, I, I think the, you know, I was saying this uh, earlier that, um, you know, I have trouble with sometimes getting the kids uh, and by kids, I mean, my, my children are teenagers, but to get them at the table to sit down and play a game and something like this, it's got this very visual component where you can, you're, it's like you're creating the paintings yourself, right? I think that is something that is probably attractive to a lot of people. Like, I think you guys have really hit on something here and, and clearly in, in the results of your campaign, you've hit on something big, right? Like people are, are uh, certainly relating to this concept. And it's, I think it's kind of cool how the names even change of the paintings, right? So depending on how you layer the cards, it'll actually create uh, a, a name. I think I saw one that's something like Melancholy Battle or something like this. It, like there's different kind of funny names that can come out of these paintings. And when you sleeve them, is there, like I've seen in your campaign, you had like little um, uh, kickstands that you could put your painting, like little easels you could put your, your painting on. Is the idea for people to kind of showcase these even after the game to say, you know, this is maybe how the game ended and this is my favorite painting or? Yeah, I think that's that's part of the the fun of it is uh, we're hoping to kind of create moments in the game that you feel like you made something yourself and it's it's worth sharing. I know I've already seen a, a few people post on Instagram and people like kind of talking through the metaphorical uh, analysis of what they believe that their their painting means and that, I, st I think stuff like that's just really fun to hear and I'm really happy that you know some people are, are getting some joy out of the the thematic aspect of that it is very much a, a game about creating something and being able to show that to to the other people and sharing that experience it's almost like you want to take those sleeved finished cards and then put it into your Dixit game. So you're like Dixit, you've got some new creations to put into that. Particular, particular <laughs> game, right? Yeah, it is. It is beautiful. Now this is the sixth campaign, I believe you guys have run uh, on Kickstarter. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to kind of highlight this because, you know, there's people out there that do Kickstarters and they're not successful or they fail. And you can go from failing to kicking ass, right? And that's certainly what you guys have done here. Um, I think it was, was it your second campaign or your third campaign that didn't quite, uh, fund it's called bow ties. Yeah. The, the, yeah, bow ties was our third campaign and we were really excited for it. We had a lot of friends and family who said, you have to put this out there. It's so good. Um, and then it just, it wasn't right for the Kickstarter market and, you know, pricing or, you know, marketing could have been better. So, you know, I, I think at that time coming out with our third one, we, we thought there was no way we could have a you know, a campaign failure. And so that was a, a big uh, wake up call. And it, we learned so much. I mean, I think uh, that it was probably the most helpful campaign from that point, because it's, it's easy to say everything I'm doing is right when mm -hmm. the campaign's successful. And it's not until you get something that's, you know, doesn't do as well that you can say, well, what can I do better for next time? How do I improve? So it was super helpful from uh, that point of view. I've, uh, I've heard two things. One is success breeds success, but I've also heard success can breed failure. And, and usually when that happens, it's because people forget the work that went into mm -hmm. that first success, right. right? You almost start like in hindsight, you, you kind of lose a lot of the detail of, of, you know, timelines kind of compressed and you, you sometimes it can be easy to forget 
everything like the grind you had to go through to get to that initial success and uh you know it can almost sometimes create an overconfidence so um it's kind of cool you guys recognize that and then so what did you pivot so when you went from your um you know the bow tie and by the way did bow ties ever did you publish it in another format or is it just kind of scuttled for now or what what did you do with that game it's available on the game crafter okay. so that's like a yep. print on demand website so you can get there <laughs> yeah we but, had jt um, smith as far on as, the... yeah, so have, yeah. Um, those guys are the best yeah. yeah jt and everyone over there um yeah but i was going to say um yeah so after bow ties didn't work out um we realized you know uh, we kind of got a better idea of what, what what was good for the Kickstarter market. So this Bowties was like a party drinking game. Okay. And that's just, you don't see that many people on um, on Kickstarter. So we realized like, what, what was so good about the other games? Why did they really, um, what did people like about them? So I think it's easy when you don't know um, the publisher that if they make a smaller game that doesn't need like a huge price point to get into, people are generally more, you know, willing to give you a shot. And then the, the trick is just like jamming a bunch of game in there and, you know, filling it with, you know, your best work, throw your love into it. And then people kind of uh, really appreciate that. And I think as we've, we've gone on to, we've learned other things like artwork really matters. You know, it, it's hard to, you're not going to be able to touch any of the components. It's going to be very hard to understand how to actually play any game through Kickstarter. But what you can do is kind of show them the moments, the physicalness. And so that's what we really loved when we we landed on these clear cards was just like, it, I can so easily show people why this will be fun. I just need a picture of like two cards slowly overlapping each other. And you'll go, oh, that, that does sound like it could be fun. So um, anything that can make the gameplay feel meaningful through like video or GIFs, is like super helpful. And so in terms of that unique mechanic, so one of the things you guys have kind of put a stake in the sand on is said, you know, going, going forward or maybe in the past, but, you know, certainly going forward, um, you know, a unique mechanic or unique component is going to be um, kind of your platform. And so have you done, is this, was Canvas the first time that happened or? Yeah, Canvas was really like the first unique component yeah. in trying to make it fit into the hobby mechanisms of it yeah we i mean if it's a unique you know component or mechanism it's just it just begs attention from you know <laughs> the board game crowd yeah certainly people want to know kind of what's that there was one that um uh travis hancock uh, did with his game um the uh, the bristol series uh with a book right his so his whole thing is you know the whole thing fits on the shelf and physically looks like a book right is that kind of unique element where people are like, oh, what is that? Right. I got, I got to have that. And certainly this is one as well. So have you guys started planning that out going forward to think, okay, without giving anything away, obviously, but have you thought of some unique, have you come across other unique things that you've already started planning saying, okay, I'm going to now incorporate these in our games going forward. Yeah. yeah. Um, I always, uh, that's kind of uh, at the forefront of my mind when I'm designing and I, I actually have a whole spreadsheet of where I just like, whenever I come up with a weird toy kind of gimmick or a, a interesting mechanism or just like a really cool way to use a component that it's not normally used, I add it to my spreadsheet and I've got just like 
a huge list of these things. And then, so that I use that as my brainstorming tool to, mm. to try and come up with new game design ideas. Sometimes I'll, uh, when I'm, when I'm really struggling to come up with something, I'll just like grab a random number generator, have it pull up two numbers. I'm like, cool. How can I smash up these two crazy ideas and see, see where that takes me. And most of the time it doesn't, uh, but like, it's an interesting mental exercise to, to kind of design from that, that perspective. And so how do you guys split the roles between the two of you? Uh, so I get the sense, Jeff, the design is something that obviously is uh, top of mind for you. Uh, is it, Andrew, are you involved in the design as well? Or have you guys kind of split the business in terms of creative versus business? Or how, how do you guys allocate uh, the, re, you know, the tasks between the two of you? Yeah, it, it's pretty collaborative. I, the game design, we, we, we split. And then Jeff is amazing with the graphic design and he'll also be really good at directing our illustrators and really like getting the ideas in our head to words so they understand what they're trying to do. Um, and then, yeah, I do the, the business. So accounting and taxes and now HR and <laughs> logistics, warehousing, yeah. So you have all the fun stuff. Uh, it depends on the perspective you're coming uh -huh. up, or some people actually see it as the fun stuff. But yeah, the uh, the fun stuff for sure. So when you guys watched <laughs> yeah. um, your 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 first couple of campaigns, they did well. I mean, they, they they did well, but it seemed to be that you really hit your stride. I believe it was when you did Crypt, right? That's when you kind of cracked. I think it was like two hundred twenty thousand, eleven point six thousand backers. Um, you know. That, that's when you're getting to big numbers, right? So when you, you you cross kind of the six figures, what was it? Like, was there anything for you guys where you said, okay, was there any learning, I guess I'm trying to get at between the campaigns you did before that point to that one? What what fundamentally changed for you guys? Probably the $9 price tag. <laughs> okay. Um, which is kind of a, you know, ridiculous price to, to sell the game at. Um, but uh, we, we tried to, uh, creates a, a really minimalist game um, that still had, you know, as high of production value as it could for $9. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of an interesting design challenge, but uh, we put a lot of effort into that, like the, you know, the way the product looked at from its packaging, right? Um, like the box looks like a uh, sarcophagus. Um, it feels very thematic and stuff. And I think that kind of drew people in and then they see the price point and they're like, oh yeah, this is, got to be the best looking game under $10 <laughs> there is. Uh, so we, yeah, we made it, uh, we made it our goal to like really uh, give you like bang for your buck with that one. Um, and maybe like, while uh, you know, smaller profit margins for that game, obviously like yeah. we were hoping that we to use that came, campaign to kind of build, build an audience and just get our games out there, have more people play our games and be able to say like, Hey, yeah, these guys are, are legit designers. Like maybe I'll, I'll back their next one. And did you find, um, with, when you have lower price points like that, uh, I know at least from personal experience, uh, you have some people will push back and say, well, wait a second, your shipping cost is, you know, more than your game or the same as your, your, did you get any of that kind of feedback? which I find very strange, right? It's like, okay, should I sell it higher so that you feel better about the shipping price? But like, was, was there any feedback like that from people? I mean, that is the psychology of, yeah. uh, you know, Kickstarter. Like you, you can't tell people how much the, the shipping costs in some ways, cause it's always ridiculous. It's crazy to think about yeah. how much of, of, of that plays into it. I mean, we went the other direction. We said, if you got two copies, 
for $9 a piece, you got free shipping. (laughs) So we, we, we made it as tight as possible. And I mean, we were, yeah, we were, we were riding the knife's edge there. (laughs) Yeah. Especially um, when you're shipping out of country too, right? Like in the, I can see in the States that's, you can make the math work. It's, I mean, you can do the math very clearly, you know, exactly what you're spending. Once you start shipping out of country, that's when uh, it's a whole nother game, right? Right. And, and I mean, shipping prices have really changed so much in the last two, three years. So I don't, it's a campaign we probably could never run again. (laughs) It was uh, just striking at the right time, but um, there's certain price points as well. that allows you to fulfill straight from China if, if need be as well. Right. So I think that type of a game was that price point, that size um, you probably could have fulfilled from China, I guess, as well would have been an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And that's what we did. So yeah, that, that helped keep costs down a lot. But but then you you still I mean, it's not the best experience for backers uh, who have to wait you know sometimes two months to to get their game and I mean and that and the games have traveled the world so you also you know have more damaged stuff that you have to replace so it's you're right it's it's just a complicated mess. <laughs> oh yeah, so and then when you did the the titles after that your pricing came up right on on the actual cost of the games was it the audience that you had created with crypt that helped with those, those later campaigns, or was there anything else that you did? Like, was there any kind of social media advertising or anything you did to, to try to build that audience outside of kind of that initial campaign? Yeah, we don't do a, a lot of advertising. Um, it's been a lot of just, uh, I mean, I think it's a lot of return backers. You know, we've had, uh, a lot of people join our mailing list after each campaign. It, it's, uh, so our outreach, going into each campaign has grown a lot. Um, and it's really important to get that momentum up front. So you kind of get the traction appear at the, at the top of the Kickstarter magic searches and, um, yeah, all that's really important. And it's just been like every game we put out, you know, we get a little more traction going into it. In terms of play testing in this new environment, uh, with COVID and lockdown and so forth, how, how have you guys changed your development approach? Um, for games going forward, because we're obviously in a very different situation now than we were even a year ago. It's all tabletop simulator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, spending way too many hours on on that program. Like, and every time you open Steam, it reminds you. It's like you've spent 400 hours playing tabletop simulator. Like, oh my god, this is crazy. But yeah, this is this is the life of game design right now. Is you know you have to do all your play testing digitally. So you yeah. got to learn the software, learn how to up upload all your custom components, get people all online at the same time, deal with the internet challenges. And, um, but yeah, we've, uh, we've been trucking through it. If anything, we're play testing more than ever before. So. And have you created like groups that you have play test groups that you guys have built up to like, as almost like an advisory uh, committee of, you know, people that have tried some of your other games, you, you respect their opinions and things like that. And, and how have you kind of moved forward with that? Yeah, so um, yeah. we have, um, you know, we've been able to make a lot of friends with other designers over the years, just the yeah. longer in the industry, you can meet new people. So it's a lot of, I'll play your design if you play my design. And then we also have, you know, really just friends and family that we can, you know, use our social credit to just make them <laughs> help us with our work. And and we love everybody who who does that for us. So, yeah. 
Well, certainly with uh, the campaigns you've done, I think, in, again, I love to put this on Canadian dollars because it's just larger. $1.2 million uh, is what I was able to add up across right. different campaigns. So that's just Kickstarter. That doesn't include what you guys have done outside of Kickstarter. Um, but that that's an incredible uh, you know, track record for a company like you. Uh, you know, indie company, who would have thought, you know, five years ago, uh, you'd be at this level. Or maybe you guys did. And, and kind of how have you planned out that that kind of future outlook. Now, obviously you have got different, I guess, colored glasses looking forward on what you've actually achieved. So now you probably have a lot more confidence in what you can achieve. But after that kind of bow ties of failure, where did, did, how did you guys kind of recalibrate? Like what was the, the, you know, kind of the general environment and, and sentiment across, you know, the two of you as you're trying to figure out your path going forward? Yeah, that was a tricky time when uh, like the bow ties uh, campaign failed. And then uh, like we, we both had day jobs. And then kind of shortly after that, we had, you know, left our, our day jobs and we were like, okay, well, it's now or never, we got to make this thing work. You know, we kind of doubled down to, to do this. So that was, that was a really crucial turning point for, for us as a, a company. And, you know, the company is just the two of us. So it's like, we got to put all our time and effort into this or, or it'll fail. And so, yeah, like we spend an obscene amount of hours working <laughs> on game design in this company. It's, uh, I don't even want to know how many hours a week I spend <laughs> doing this, but. Well, and I think that, and I'm glad you said that because I think it breaks the illusion that some people might have that, oh, somebody, they just took a game and threw it up on Kickstarter and, you know, had some fancy graphics thrown up and, you know, next thing you know, they're, they're, they're making all this money. It's a massive grind, right? Like there's so many different aspects of this. There's the game design, getting that right. But then there's the manufacturing side and making sure that you get the, your projections of your finances correct. Because as you know, one mistake in shipping and it's the difference between you making money and losing a boatload of money, right? So um, this isn't a one and done for you guys. You guys now with you know six campaigns, you can't afford to um, have an error, right? Of something like that, because it can it can really impact you as a company, right? And people's confidence in those campaigns going forward. So, how do you guys forecast? Like right now, like is it based on now you've had your you know enough campaigns that you can kind of figure what you know the right math and if that's the case, how did you do it before you had gone through this a couple of times to figure out what's some advice you'd have from other people to help them make sure they're prepared? Yeah. So, you know, my research and I suggest everyone do this is go find your favorite campaigns, find the ones that fulfilled on time or yeah. had great tracking info and find out where that came from and, um, and look for those companies there are a bunch of fulfillment companies. So we, we, we uh, use fun again, logistics, but there's, mm. In Asia, there's plenty of companies, Asia VFI, you're, you're going to want to source for multiple places and find the really credible ones, talk to them and, and tell them, try and forecast your own numbers. You might have to wait until the campaign's over to actually give them, you know, hey, I think my box weighs this much, it's this big, and I need you to send out 300 shipments, you know, to Japan. Like, can you give me an estimate? And, and just get those estimates and then, um, kind of based on, you know, what you've, what other companies have used, you know, like to go with those guys, you know, and, and yeah, that's the way to do it. Just kind of see what everyone else is doing and, and choose the best people. <laughs> yeah. On this show, we talk a lot about, uh, again, I'll give credit to, um, CrowdOx's, uh, Chandler, uh, Copenhaver. 
he calls it the uh, coopetition, right? Where you have all these um, different publishers that try to help each other, right? And want to see each other be successful. I mean, people that mm-hmm. create games love games and uh, love playing other people's games. Um, maybe it makes sense to uh, reach out to another uh group or company that have already uh, put a game on Kickstarter. And I get, I know there's a lot of trust in it, but even almost sharing saying, Hey, do you mind taking a look at this kind of profit loss uh, document I've put together? Uh, I think I've got everything right, but I just need a second set of eyes to make sure I haven't missed anything fundamental. I mean, that could be the difference between somebody making a colossal error and, and, and saving an error, I guess. Eh? That's yeah, true. I, that's true. Yeah. I think like it's, it's a really amazing community that in the board game world yeah. where I think every designer and every publisher I've ever met is just so willing to like give information and help and feedback on everything. Like no one's trying to get a, you know, a leg up on each other. Like it's all, it, like you said, it's extremely collaborative. Yeah. Um, and so if, if you're an aspiring designer, like, you know, there, there's so many Reese's out there, like just, just reach out. And like, I guarantee people are, are happy to help, you know, it's, it's a really cool, positive community. So definitely take advantage of the the resources and, you know, people will, will always be willing to give any advice to, to help you succeed. Yeah. So after Canvas is fulfilled, which I think is in the next couple of months, um, what's next for you guys? Do you have another game on the way or what's, you're just going to kind of rest for a while or what, what's the plan? So we haven't uh, officially announced anything yet. We've uh, we've been kind of figuring out when and how to to do it, but you know, I guess this is as good of a time as any, right? Hey, what better place <laughs> than the binge? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've been uh, we've been working on a new game. Uh, it's well, it's kind of a, it's a sequel game. It's called Crypt. Here lies the queen. Um, mm. So it's a standalone sequel to our previous Crypt game. Um, and so the the reason we're we're working on this project is because we've we've sold out of Crypt. It's been a it's been you know we've been fortunate enough for that that came to be very successful. And we uh, on top of that we did a, a pay what you feel campaign last year that that did very well. Like so the the pay what you feel campaign was um, we we made Crypt available to to whoever wanted it for whatever price they wanted it at, and we ended up sending twenty five hundred copies of it. Like wow across the the states and so that was really uh it was a really cool thing to do and we got a lot of positive feedback on that um and but now we don't have any more crypt <laughs> how did so, you employ that did that go through like just through your website or how did you run that campaign yeah we we made a, a post on reddit and it just went to our website and a paypal link it was just very basic and simple um but yeah it, it worked out pretty well there were some really generous people and then like and, and you know, and you also, of course, you you send some copies for free to others, but it all yep. kind of balanced out, and it was it was a really great positive experience for everyone. I think. What did it average out to, if you don't mind me asking? Like, what did with all that together per unit? What did you end up averaging higher than the nine dollars that you did on Kickstarter? Or? I don't remember. Uh, do you remember, Andrew? It was definitely more than nine dollars. Yeah. Um. So, so that was super nice. A lot of people, you know, got the game for the cost of shipping and a lot of other people were super generous. So, um, we still, but, and then we had to pay for shipping. So, um, so, you know, uh, it, which is, which ended up, you know, being, 
you know, close to break even. <laughs> it all balanced out, but you're not sitting on a bunch of stock paying for storage. So that's a pretty good thing too, right? And it gives you a chance. Exactly. To- exactly. Yeah. Work on the sequel. And, and it was a lot of goodwill. So we were able, yeah. And, and yeah. since we were able to do that right before the launch of Canvas, there was a ton of goodwill towards Canvas when that came out. So it was a nice, you know, piece of marketing in a time when people need games, I think. I got somebody in the lobby who's just asking. But yeah, that. the new game crypt. <laughs> yeah, the new game crypt. Oh, in the uh, lobby. Yeah. yeah, is it going to be $9 was the question. They said, is it going to be the same price as the original crypt or is it going to be a little bit higher? I don't, I don't think it's uh, feasible anymore. <laughs> but on top of that, um, we're, we're really trying to, to upgrade the experience. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to do some cooler components. Um, and uh, we've, we've upgraded gameplay quite a bit. Um, so it's, we've, we've kind of mitigated the luck factor to it. Now there's like communal dice rolls that affect everyone. There's all new scoring tiles. Um, there, yeah, the, 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 the central bidding mechanism works a little differently. So there's no more like bumping people out and undoing each other's turn. So it's, um, it's a lot more kind of strategic without the feel bad moments, I guess. That sounds awesome. Well, guys, uh, I appreciate your time. This has been uh, amazing uh, going through, again, just kind of seeing the story behind how Canvas came together. It hit my radar when I was on Kickstarter uh, last year, and I didn't get a chance to actually uh, pledge on it. So I was asking you uh, just before we came live here, is once you guys are done all your pledges, if there's going to be any extra stock that'll uh, that'll go as late, late pledges. So for people looking to still get into that game, uh, there might be some stock available you're seeing in the couple next couple of months. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll have the game available on on our website and Amazon. So probably late February, March, we should we should have some stock available. Yeah. Will you ever do a reprint on that, given how popular and successful that that game was? Yeah, I I think so. Uh, I'm not quite sure what kind of units we'll be looking at after a fulfillment, yeah. but uh, yeah, I'm sure there will be future reprints and stuff. Awesome. Well, Jeff, Andrew, all the best to you this year. Uh, you guys are living the dream. Uh, you're, you're doing this full time. And I know there's a lot of people that kind of look into you guys and seeing your success and it's inspiring others. So I want to thank you for that and everything you've done for this community. Yeah. Thanks, James. Thank you. Take you. Care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.